Catechism, where we left off. You remember the last question we answered last week was that, are we so far depraved that we're wholly unapt to do any good and prone to all evil? And the answer was yes, unless we're born again by the Spirit of God. So this morning we start with the question, does not God then wrong man by requiring of him in his law that which he cannot perform? And the answer is no. For God so made man that he could perform it. But man, through the instigation of the devil, by willful disobedience, deprived himself and all his posterity of this power. Question 10 then. Will God suffer such disobedience and apostasy to go unpunished? And the answer is by no means. 
But he is terribly displeased with our inborn as well as our actual sins. And will punish them in just judgment in time and eternity as he has declared. Cursed is everyone that continues not in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. Question 11 then, is then God not also merciful? And the answer is God is indeed merciful. But he is likewise just. Wherefore? His justice requires that sin which is committed against the most high majesty of God be also punished with extreme, that is, with everlasting punishment, both of body and soul. To that we say, Amen. Amen. Now if you'll turn in your Bibles with me for our public reading, I'm going to read from the book of 2 Corinthians. This morning at the close of the message and before the supper, we're going to see two sides of church discipline. We see some who need to be disciplined, and we're going to see someone who once was disciplined rejoined to our number. And Paul discusses that necessity in 2 Corinthians chapter 2. So I'm going to read 2 Corinthians chapter 2 and verses 1 through 11 this morning. Would you stand to your feet with me out of respect for the public reading of God's word? Paul says, But I determined this with myself, that I would not come again to you in heaviness. For if I make you sorry, who is he then that maketh me glad? But the same which is made sorry by me. And I wrote this same unto you, lest when I came, I should have sorrow from them of whom I ought to rejoice having confidence in you all that my joy is the joy of you all. For out of much affliction and anguish of heart, I wrote unto you with many tears, not that ye should be grieved, but that ye might know the love which I have more abundantly unto you. But if any have caused grief, he hath not grieved me, but in part, that I may not overcharge you all. Sufficient to such a man is this punishment which was inflicted of many. So that contrarywise, Ye ought rather to forgive him and comfort him, lest perhaps such a one should be swallowed up with overmuch sorrow. Wherefore I beseech you that that ye would confirm your love toward him. For to this end also did I write, that I might know the proof of you, whether ye be obedient in all things. To whom ye forgive anything, I forgive also. For if I forgave anything, to whom I forgave it, for your sakes forgave I it in the person of Christ." lest Satan should get an advantage of us, for we are not ignorant of his devices. And all people said, Amen. Please remain standing. We're concluding our study and thoughts on the book of Micah today, so I would have you turn to Micah chapter 7 and verse number 16. Micah 7 and 16. The scriptures say, The nations shall see and be confounded at all their might. They shall lay their hand upon their mouth, their ears shall be deaf. Father, as we approach this portion of scripture, we understand that there are times that your children are under ridicule and mocked by the world. But we know that there is a day coming the appearing of our great God, our Lord and Savior, 
that every mouth will be finally shut. Every eye will be open to the reality of who you are. As we observe this text, we see that even though the troubles may come upon Israel in a real, profound, and physical sense, there will be a day that all of those nations that turned on her would be confounded and that they would have to cover their mouths and their ears will not hear because of the great amazement of your work of mercy and grace through your Son, Jesus Christ. I pray now that you would bless the preaching of thy word in Jesus' name. Amen. And you may be seated. What do we know about great sinners? They need a great Savior, do they not? They do. And, and so for those of us who can honestly say, yeah, that's me, preacher, a great sinner. We need a great Savior. And I praise the Lord we have it in Jesus Christ. He is the great physician, the great shepherd, the great Savior. And our hope can be there. When Martin Luther, the great reformer, was around 62 years old, he wrote a poem that he intended to be sung. And the last lines of that poem say, Though great our sins and sore our wounds and deep and dark our fall. So he's describing our unconverted condition. His helping mercy hath no bounds. His love surpasseth all. Our trusty, loving shepherd, he who shall at last set Israel free from all their sin and sorrow. So he had the picture right. The only hope we were going to have would be in God. I think it's very interesting that Pastor Josh read from the Heidelberg Catechism today talking about uh, the uh, understanding of God being just and the justifier. And we'll see that in full color next Lord's Day, Lord willing. Uh, but... We can see it here in a sense that those of us who deserve God's judgment, His wrath upon us and His great mercy, He saved us. Because while we were yet in our sins, He did that. And we thank God for it. What a way to close out the thoughts on Micah, though. There is a God, there is no God like our God. In verse 18, as we read three weeks in a row, that pardoneth iniquity and Passeth by the transgression of the remnant of his heritage. He retaineth not his anger forever. And why, we are told, because he delighteth in mercy. The last question in the catechism today. This is it. He is indeed a merciful God. And you and I should thank him abundantly for that. We aren't always the most merciless, though. Are merciful, are we? We're often merciless against one another against those who truly need mercy. And, and we find ourselves many times, instead of displaying mercy upon those that are at odds with us, we become angry with them and we even may even attack them verbally. And, and I've done it on such so many occasions. I, I'd like to not even recall them, but it is a true picture of how we are in our sinful state and we need to be in a constant state of repentance and be thankful I've spoken evil about ministers of the gospel and had to repent and realize that I was making an error as these men no they don't, they don't 
direct your church exactly like I do and the things I may not be in full agreement with on this or that, but I was showing no mercy whatsoever, knowing that God has shown mercy on me when I didn't deserve a drop of it. Because that's what mercy is. You don't deserve it. You get it because the person chooses to be merciful, and this is our Lord and Savior. He's merciful to us. When the gospel came into the world through Jesus Christ's incarnation as he came to earth in his physical form, the world set itself in array against him, did it not? I mean, they hated him. Jesus came unto his own, but alas, his own wouldn't even have him. And that's a sad statement. Our text verse says that the nations shall see, they'll see it, and they'll be confounded at this great mercy that God will show to his people. No doubt, uh, this is historically speaking, of, and, and um, I was reading John Gill's commentary on that this week, and John Gill says this is most evidently speaking historically of the, of the of Chaldeans, the, uh, the Babylonians, all the ones, the Assyrians who would, who would set themselves in array against God's people, and they're going to see the wonderful deliverance of God as he delivers his people out of their hands, their own hands. And, and interestingly, in some of them, they were delivered out of their hands by their own leaders, which just even further astounded the people. You know, we've had these people captive, and, and now our own king is turning them free. He's sending them with a letter for protection and, and, and maybe even soldiers to protect them on the way and giving them the right to go back and establish their nation. And they will be amazed, as the scripture said, they're going to put their hands in their mouth. How we do? Oh, when something happens that astounds us and all their boasting will be gone. All of it will be gone. Now for us today, no doubt, when we read something like Romans 3 and verse 19, it comes to our mind immediately. Now we know that whatsoever, what things soever saith the law, it saith to them who are under the law, and to what end? That every mouth may be stopped, and all the world may become guilty before God. The law speaks, and every man becomes guilty. The law says we're all sinners, and man can't argue it. He knows himself. Once the law was shown to man, he could no longer glory in himself. For now he sees himself as sinful and as undone. He's ashamed. So it is with the nations as they see the deliverance of Israel. They cannot glory in their power any longer because there's a power beyond them that has set those people free. They now have to see the power of God. Thus they lay their hands upon their mouths. Their ears will be deaf. They won't be able to respond. Verse 17, the very next verse says, They shall lick the dust like a serpent. Total humility. They'll be completely humbled before the hand of God. They shall move out of their holes like worms of the earth. And you know a worm doesn't come out of the hole unless there's some distress. Uh, you, has anybody ever fiddled for worms? You know what I'm talking about. But if you haven't fiddled for them, you know what happens when a hard rain comes. It washes them. They, boy, they come up to the surface. They've got to have air lest they drown so this is how they're going to be. They're going to be desperately searching and seeking. They will be afraid of the Lord our God and shall fear because of thee. This is what's going to happen when God sees deliverance. And that's what ought to happen when God sees deliverance in an individual's life from sin. It ought to be evident 
they, they ought, people ought to be humbled. Wow, this is the person that ran with us. This is the person that, that, that did all these things with us, that was involved in these things, and we thought for sure he was ours forever. And yet now, God has delivered him. This is not the same person. In fact, I don't even like being near him because it makes me uncomfortable to be around him now. Why would you be uncomfortable be around somebody that would be just and obedient to the law and careful with their words and speak kind things and show mercy and obey the civil laws and be faithful to the things of God? Why should that person scare you? That sounds like the safest person you could run with, but they're like, no, I'm afraid of the Lord and I'm fearing because of Him. That's really what they're saying, but they don't want to say, you just don't want to have fun anymore. My friends, I tell you that all of the mockings of the world, even when your own family mocks your piety, even when those of your own household may do it, and they may tell you, no, I don't agree with you, when your co-workers <coughs> scoff at your desire to be in the assembly on the Lord's Day, are you serious? You know how much money you could make if you work on Sundays, it's double time, half time, whatever it is. I don't know how they figure it anymore. Half times in football, isn't it? <laughs> There's come a day when they will no longer glory. There'll be a day they won't glory in that any longer. They will be ashamed. Whatever stand that you are presently taking for the Lord, if it is truly for the Lord, today it's going to be uncomfortable. You know what? Bear under it. Bear under the discomfort and you remain faithful. Israel couldn't just walk out of captivity. They couldn't walk out of Babylon at their own free will. They had to bear it for 70 years. There will come a day, though, that they will no longer have to bear that. And there will be a day that Babylon can no longer glory. They will be ashamed. So keep that in mind. The lost, the unconverted, doesn't understand it. They don't see it. They don't get it. It doesn't make sense to them. So... To conclude the book of, of Micah, an overview was given by Micah, first of all, to convince Israel of their sins. He set sin before them as sinful and said, here's what it looks like. And secondly, he comforted those very same people that he said, here are the sins that you were involved in. But the comfort is that God promises mercy and deliverance to those who will repent. And particularly... I believe he has an eye to the coming of the Messiah very, very clearly. A taste of the gospel is seen not just in a spoonful, but in a river in this particular book. So first of all, to convince them of their sins. He sets their sins, as I said, directly under the nose of the Israelites, calling them to see it in all of the filth. And in the first couple of chapters, this type of preaching is normally frowned upon today in an age where we want to be coddled, we want to be loved on. Uh, we want people to tell us things that encourage us. We need constant affirmation in our society. Somebody wasn't nice to me or whatever. We, we love it when somebody likes or shares the things we put online. And it gives us some kind of feeling about ourselves that we feel successful. And, and here is what we need to remember. That we are at our best. Great sinners, as I said, in need of a great Savior. That, there we are at our best. We are sinners, and we need a great Savior. And so it is with Micah to show us our sinfulness, to show Israel their sinfulness, and then to show them their Savior. 
And we see our Savior, we see Jesus Christ. In chapters 1 and 2, we're told that God would be a witness against Israel. And he has done just that. In fact, it's in verse 2 of chapter number 1 that he makes it very clear. Hear all ye people, hearken, O earth, and all that therein is. So it's not just to Israel, but to everyone. And let the Lord God be witness against you and the Lord from his holy temple. He, he's saying God sees all you're doing. God knows what is happening. He knows what's happening uh, behind your closed doors. He knows what's happening in your business. He knows what's happening when you make a decision about the cash deal. He knows all of these decisions that you're making, and he sees them all. He's aware of them. You're not hiding anything from God. We're told in verse 9 of chapter 1 that, the, that Israel's wound was incurable. It was incurable. There's nothing that could be done for it. In other words, their wound was a hopeless cause. Have you ever known someone, and that's what you say, boy, that's hopeless. There's no hope for them. Boy, I'll tell you what, they have gone and there is no return for them. I'm sure we have. Uh, we think of Ecclesiastes 7.13, consider the work of God. And then the question is, for who can make that straight which he hath made crooked? Who can do it? Nobody. Nobody. Except God. Except him. He's the only one. Only God can do this work. It's a divine work. We can't affect it on our own. Jeremiah, it was Jeremiah that asked in Jeremiah 12 and verse 23, can the Ethiopian change his skin? Is it possible for the Ethiopian to change his skin? Uh, he's a dark-skinned man, and he's asking, can he make it white? Can he make it lighter? Or the leopard, his spots. When a leopard comes into his maturity and he's covered with all of these spots... Can he do something about it? What can the leopard do? Can he go down to the local leopard hairdresser and have them dye it and change the colors? He says no. He says, then, may ye also do good that are accustomed to do evil. He said, Jeremiah's asking this because the great sin of the people, they had become accustomed to it. It's just what they did. It's just what we do. It's how we live. It's, it's all the things that we're involved in. Abortion's been going on since the 70s, legally, under the protection of the U.S. government, of the laws of the land. We've been protected. It's just what we do. So we just get accustomed to it. We drive past the abortion clinics, and we call them women's services clinics now, you know, to help a, help a lady in distress. We, it's just common to us. They've been in their sins so long that there was little hope that they would ever be brought out of it, particularly on their own. The Ethiopian being black by nature, the leopard with the spots by nature, it's part of his makeup. You just can't wash it off with a sponge. You can't alter it. It is something that is now part of them. When a man becomes accustomed to do evil, as the verse says, when they were raised up in it, when they're hardened into it, Micah despaired, much as Jeremiah despaired a hundred years later. Remember, Micah's preaching to the same people, the same message, a hundred years later. Micah warned them, and in his day, God spared them. Gave them another hundred years or so. Then Jeremiah warned them, and in short order, God took them. So who can really change man? Obviously, man can't, and it's a living testimony they hear the word of Micah, and God gives them a hundred years under the preaching of Micah. 
Here it is. Micah says, this is what's wrong. This is what will affect the change. And this is what you must do. And a hundred years passed. A hundred years. And Jeremiah comes back and says, same song, same dance. This time if you don't correct it, God will judge. In Micah chapter 2. Michael listed all the sins that Israel was charged with and he promised sure judgment upon them if they would not repent. As it is with any warning, there's comfort and hope for those who would repent. After telling them that you're going to be humbled, you're going to be brought low, even banished from your own country. In verse 12 of chapter 2, he comforts them by saying, I will surely assemble, O Jacob, all of thee. You're going to be punished. But I'm going to assemble you. I will surely gather the remnant of Israel. Which ought to have been a scary word to think that it isn't all of you. It's going to be a remnant. It'll be a small group that I'm going to redeem. I will put them together as a sheep of Basra, as a flock in the midst of their fold. They shall make great noise by reason of the multitude of men. And then he says, the breaker has come up before them. They have broken up and have passed through the gate and are gone out by it and their king shall pass before them and the Lord on the head of them. Oh, there's some comfort there for you, Israel. No, you will see captivity, but there is a deliverer. He was the Messiah in all of this. Now the desire of the ages is seen in Jesus Christ. We know that everything that man has longed to be fulfilled with is found in him. It'll only be by him. One of the things that stands out to me in Micah is that it is not just the common man that Micah deals with in his accusation of sins, but it is the heads, the princes of the house of Israel in verse 1 of chapter number 3. And then in verse 11, it's the judges and priests and the prophets are mentioned. Those in leadership positions need to take heed that you do not escape judgment simply because you have a position of oversight. We would rather need to remember the teaching in the book of James that we'll be judged more harshly for those positions. He says, my brethren, in James 3.1, be not many masters. There's his warning to them, don't try to be the one in charge, knowing that we shall receive the greater condemnation. That's the way it will be for the one because you're the one proclaiming the truth. You know the truth. You need to perform the truth for pastors and, 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 and even fathers, heads of households. All of us have that responsibility to be obedient to God because, hey, we're going to receive the greater condemnation. It's on our backs. And I know that. I told a brother this morning, I said, I tremble. When I get behind the pulpit, understanding the weight of it, and I think about it, that's why I take it more seriously than I do other aspects of my life. When, I, when I'm just speaking to you casually, yes, every idle word is going to be judged by God. I understand that. But even more so then, when I'm standing here with the obligation to preach the gospel, do I not realize that idle words here would be judged even more severely? Imagine if I'm, if I'm giving the instructions on how to defuse a bomb and the guy has three wires to choose from. He said, I got a yellow wire, I got a red wire, and I got a blue wire. And I go, okay, cut the green one. Ha <laughs> ha, just kidding. There's no green wire, is there? He'd be like, what are you doing, man? I'm trying to defuse this bomb and you're not helping. You're trying to be funny. You're being trite. 
And many times that's the approach to the ministry for many preachers. It's just make it trite, make it light. Oh, this is a time to fun. It's always just a celebration. It's just a party. We're just having a great old time here, aren't we? The truth is there's a great weight that's put before us. We love to be soothed out of our thoughts of our sinfulness. I don't want to be thought of as sinful. I want to be thought of everything going great. Well, with all the threatenings from Micah. And believe me, we've gone through the threatenings of Micah. Somebody said, I'll be glad when you're out of the minor prophets. I bet Israel wished the minor prophets would have shut up too. Oh, they did. They even tried to kill them. And they did. They cut some of them asunder. And so uh, if I stay longer in this, that may be what happens to me. Uh, You may say, I'm tired of it. It's time to cut the preacher asunder. Uh, And that's fine. But there's a great promise in every one of these books. And if you miss it, you've missed the whole thing. Because you've missed Jesus. Go to chapter 5. Chapter 5. We know this. We looked at this. We, we spent two, two Lord's Days just on this alone in Micah 5 and verse 2. But thou, after all I've told you, after all I've warned you, thou, Bethlehem, Ephratah, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, you're this little tiny community among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall he come forth. Unto me that is to be ruler in Israel. Whose going forth have been from old, from everlasting. He's eternal. Jesus will come forth and be the ultimate deliverer. All of these shadows, these captivities and these freedoms and and the sacrifices. And all of the things that are going on in Israel's Life And in Israel's world, he said, there is coming a day that one will come forth out of thee unto me. He will be the ruler. He's the one you're ultimately looking for, whose going forth have been from old, from everlasting. Jesus will protect his people. He will give victory over his enemies. He will advance his kingdom as he pleases. This is the comfort that we have in a world that seems to shift and to slide with every wind. Finally, in chapter 7, we close with a reminder of the great promise in verse 16. The nations, they'll see this. They'll see this and they'll be confounded at all their might. I was reading an article, Pastor Josh, from this uh, unconverted Jewish journalist that was making a statement. He said he traveled around the world back, back a year or so ago. He traveled around the world and doing news reports and things. And he said... Everywhere I go, I see crosses, I see the declaration of Christianity, I see all of these affirmations of this supposed Jewish king. He said, there's not a place I go that the world has not been touched by this story. That's how he saw it, as an unconverted Jew. Out of thee, Bethlehem. Out of you, the one that will come forth that has been from old, from everlasting. And every island will be touched, every nation. And it happened on the day of Pentecost. We saw it very clearly there. There wasn't a single nation excluded from the proclamation of the gospel and even conversions from every one of those nations. What a blessed truth. Our Lord and Savior puts before us. 
And so these nations will be confounded. They will shake their heads in unbelief at the wonders that they see. As that journalist was doing, I just can't believe this. I mean, it's, it's everywhere. Know, know this to be true. None other than Jesus Christ could ever give that kind of assurance through his forgiveness of sins. And here is the, the little twist in this. We get great assurance through the forgiveness of our sins. The great biblical principle of forgiveness that's placed before us so often. Some think that that assurance encourages us to go on sinning. If we know he will forgive us, then we know we can continue on in our sin. All I have to do is turn to him and say, hey, I messed up again. You just forgive me. But do you know the opposite is actually true? If we live in that manner, the mindset that I will sin freely and do as I please in my flesh, and when it comes to my mind, I'll repent and I'll say I'm sorry, we are affirming rather that we don't belong to him in the first place. We're not his at all. Because we're told in Scripture that if we love him, we keep his commandments. It's not the other way around. If we don't keep his commandments, we love him. That's not what the Scripture says. If we love him, we keep his commandments. However, for the true believer, he's broken when he sins. God makes the promise to us. And I love it. It's in 1 John 1, 9. We know the promise if we confess our sins. He is faithful and just to forgive our sins. Forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. What a, what a beautiful promise, but... No sooner than John had written those words, no sooner than the ink had touched the page, probably before the ink had even dried, he continues to write, My little children, these things write I unto you, that you sin not. So he tells them, If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And then in the very first verse of chapter 2, my little children, these things write I unto you that you sin not. I'm writing you this not to give you a way to sin. I'm not writing you this so that you can feel comfortable in your sins and can just turn to God and sin. I'm writing so that you won't sin. And then in his great love for his children, he says, And if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins. What is a propitiation? It's the one that appeases the wrath of the one that has the power to execute judgment. He appeases the wrath of God. He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only. But also for the sins of the whole world. Anyone, he says, that would repent and believe the gospel truly coming to the Lord, he says he has an advocate with the Father. This is Jesus Christ the righteous. And so our heart is comforted. We're not encouraged to sin by that verse. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us. It's almost like if we confess our sins, he has to do it. It's just... The way it works. If I press this button, this light has to come on. That's the way it works. No. He's saying, I'm not writing these things to you so that you can sin. I'm writing these things so that you won't sin. Sometimes we wonder 
At least I know I've had many people tell me, I wonder if God can truly forgive my sins. Can He truly forgive the depth of my sins? As bad as my sins have been. We wrestle with our sins. We struggle with them greatly. This is a classic case, though, of a person just not trusting what God's clearly said in His Word. Those closest to us who know us so well, they see our struggles, they see our failures, do they not? They should also see our repentance. Some of you married folks have not repented in front of your spouse in so long. They don't even know what that looks like. They've not heard you say, you know, I was wrong in this and I sinned against you, I sinned against God. And I want you to forgive me. I've sought repentance and found it as the Lord granted it from my Heavenly Father. You, you haven't even said that in years. You've just gone on in that state and they know you so well. When I married my wife, when my wife married me, she married my old nature as well as my new nature. Nobody told her that. But she did. She married a saved sinner. So did I. We're not talking about her. We're talking about me. She married someone who had indeed been forgiven from his sins and would yet need to be forgiven more. I long for the day that I stop sinning. Then I'll be with my Lord, won't I? But today... I ask as I stand here in front of this supper. Who is a God like unto our God? That pardoneth iniquity. He passes by the transgression of his remnant. He doesn't retain his anger forever. Why? Because he delights in mercy. Don't you want to be like him? I want to delight in mercy. I don't want to retain my anger forever. I don't want to be bitter over the things that have happened to me in the past. Oh, I was so mistreated as a child. I was so mistreated at this point in my life. It was such an ugly, dark spot. It's made me who I am. Bitter. I don't want to be there. He will turn again. He will have compassion upon us. He will subdue our iniquities. And he will cast our sins into the depths of the sea forever. Thanks be to God for our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Can you confess that today? Because I ask, has he forgiven your sins? Are you his child? If so, this memorial supper is to remind you that that he broke his body for you. He shed his blood for you. And you're to come and you're to eat and drink in remembrance of his death. Till he comes. You're to do this till he comes. Oh, don't you want sweet communion with Him? That's part of the picture. I don't ever want to come to the day I can't take the supper because I'm refusing to repent before my Lord. No, I'm not going to repent. I'm not going to get things right. I want to be right with Him. I don't want anyone to miss the beauty and blessing. But yet, in the midst of that, that's the one side of the coin. The other side of the coin is we're called to examine ourselves told to look at ourselves and to be painfully honest with ourselves. Yes, I serve a great Savior. 
I'm a great sinner. And I call you to come to him. Repent and believe the gospel this very day. As we have those who are helping serve the communion come forward. Pastor Josh, I'm going to have you come at this time.